This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is uh, Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today I'm honored to be joined by Professor Heidi Larson to talk about uh, her book uh, that she published with Oxford University Press in 2020. The book is called Stock, How Vaccine Rumors Start and Why They Don't Go Away. Heidi Larson is a professor of anthropology, risk and decision science, and is the founding director of the Vaccine Confidence Project at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Uh, Heidi, welcome to New Books Network. Nice to be here. Thanks. Uh, Could you please uh, briefly introduce yourself? Tell us how this book came about. Did you start working on the book before COVID? Uh, And uh, I guess you did start working on that before COVID, but with COVID, uh, it became even more relevant. Yes, um, I'm um, partly embarrassed to say that um, I actually uh, left UNICEF to write this book. Uh, in I stepped down in 2005, uh, but at the time I was going to write the book um, on polio and all the stories behind the stories, basically, in trying to get the world to take a polio vaccine and for eradication. And the more I started to, and I um, was a research fellow at Harvard during that time to work on the book, and I still did advising with with some of, with the international community, but um, the more I dug into the issues around polio, the more I realized they were so relevant to so many other vaccines. Um, and I started to do a lot more research on, on other vaccines and set up the Vaccine Confidence Project. And with my research team, with that took a, away from my writing for a while. But in the meanwhile, we were accumulating more and more. And it seemed like the momentum of these issues over that time period, just were getting bigger and bigger. Um, so as it goes, when I um, got the contract with, with Oxford Press, that's really when you go from working on it periodically to really 
focused time. So really, I would say the three years before COVID was the most intensive writing time. Um, and I wrote about um, four times as much as is in the book. <laughs> and because it was really meant for the popular science to be for a lay audience, as it were. Um, yeah, so it came out literally on the eve of COVID. COVID had been announced as a pandemic. And my since my last chapter is on pandemics and publics, it was it was the last chapter before COVID was announced. Um, uh, Oxford was was kind enough to let me write an, uh, a new uh, prologue um, that talked about the relevance to COVID. And the second edition has uh, a new prologue reflecting on two years of COVID and and the relevance. Oh, that's great. I didn't know there was a second edition coming out because I got the 2020 version, but uh, we, we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, and as you said, it's a very timely book with with, with the whole anti-vaxxer uh, movements around the world. But uh, briefly, in, in first chapter, you talk about some factors that give rise to these rumors. And that's also the title of the book, How Vaccine Rumors Start. And it's not a new phenomenon even in the I think it was in the 18th or 19th century with Edward Jenner. We still had those anti-vaxxers movements or anti-vaxxers in general. But can you talk about some general factors that amplify these rumors or provide a fertile ground for these rumors to start? Or if we could give us some examples as well, that would be great. Sure. Um, well, let's say um, one of the big issues actually going back uh, to the Jenner and the, the introduction of the smallpox vaccine, the thing that really triggered the, the resistance movements and, and provoked an organized reaction, and actually the very first one was the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League, and it was really uh, when there was a compulsory uh, law, a requirement to have the, the, the smallpox vaccine. And that has been... I think a very strong theme throughout history um, is this libertarian, don't tell me what to do, anti-government control sentiment. And that loomed large during COVID, but has been a theme, freedom of choice, freedom of uh, decision, you know, around uh, vaccines. So the freedom theme is there. Um, The other strong theme that actually goes back historically is uh, this is against God's plan. This this is not Mother Nature. We're messing around with um, our natural rhythms. Um, and why are we putting something else in our body? Um, so that theme has come and gone over the years. Well, it's never really gone. Um, and and some of this isn't just rumors, um, but these are the sentiments that um, give people the appetite for rumors that give a different story than what is scientifically evidence. Um, rumors, I mean, one of the oldest rumors is that vaccines sterilize people. Um, there is, I, I, particularly among minority groups, but among others, the anxiety, it was a, it was a common thing that came up in, in different settings around the polio vaccination, particularly around mass vaccines, vaccinations. And we see that these rumors um, sleep. And then when there's an opportunity or an issue or a political opportunity, they, they, 
they surface again. Um, I mean, in India, you know, some of these rumors about sterilization, they're not crazy. There were, there was a history of forced sterilization at one point. So people have not just individual memories, but his community memories and, and any community that has been, it's, it's quite existential. You know, when you think about anxiety, about sterilization, you're, you you don't trust the government. So these people are also, I look a lot at the um, three things. What are the fertile ground for rumors? What are the, what are the triggers? What is the fertile ground that amplifies them? And what are the impacts? That's very much the kind of the framing I look at because something triggers them or revives them and something, uh, uh um, catalyzes or fertilizes their spread. And one thing I was fascinated by in my UNICEF work was um, that, you know, you could have the same rumor in two or three different countries, same rumor, and it would play out very differently. And that was because of culture. It was because of different histories, different politics, um, different anxieties. Um, so, and that's really what got me very fascinated about um, writing this book. And, and uh, just a question popped up in my mind as we were speaking about different factors. I, I know people are literally uneducated. They are even illiterate, but they trust vaccines. And there are people even, you know, there are university professors out there who are very well educated, but they're anti-vaxxers. It's rarely anything to do with education. It's, there is also a personality element in that as well. Absolutely. Um, I would say personality, personal um, uh, and beliefs and culture. Um, beliefs. I, I have a chapter on the power of belief, and you know, it doesn't. You can't throw facts at. Uh, it's almost religious um, in a sense. I mean, you don't you don't ask for evidence that God existed um, or exists. Um, you don't ask. You know, detail. Uh, it's you believe in them. It, it's a, a deep belief, and there's there is this almost religious belief, um, also in mother nature, uh, people will gobble up all kinds of things. If it says natural on it with no evidence at all that they work and, and no kind of, um, rigorous looking at sometimes the harm they can cause, but, you know, you bring a vaccine, which has (laughs) years of evidence and trials and people go, Whoa, no thanks. Or, you know, (laughs) where's the evidence. (laughs) Mm. And uh, can you talk about uh, the reasons why a rumor goes viral and what are, and you also discussed the patterns of a spread as well. So that would be great if you could expand on these points. Um, (laughs) I, this is the part I really love with vaccines because it's, you know, it's like a det- I have a, a group of researchers and uh, it's like detective work because when you want to find out who really got this thing going, um, it's not necessarily a new rumor, but in that context, what was it in that context that sparked sparked the spread of this rumor? Who are the people 
um, the individuals or the groups um, that um, kind of held on to it and and amplified it. And these days, um, we're doing a lot more um, work on social media uh, analytics. Um, I think we cannot forget that people still talk to each other and we still have face-to-face communication. But the the I think the thing that particularly during COVID that sent you know just exploded the virality of of vaccine rumors was um, was the power of social media to go fast and far um, and for me um, I think the issue there is less I mean we should be let. I want I want to say we should be less focused on debunking misinformation and more focused on um, clipping the amplification of it. Um, but we need to do both. Um, to the we don't want harmful information to be spreading, but at the same time, only doing that we can't we won't be able to keep up with the the spread. We need to. And that's a challenge with social media platforms because their business strategy is amplification. There, there is also a question that I just wanted to ask again. It's, as you mentioned, social media plays an important role. I originally come from Iran. And you book, you won't mention that uh, anti-vaccine movements kind of spread in places where they had never even heard of it. It's like in my country, I never heard of like anti-vax movements, but with COVID, there were again, it was a lot of backlash against vaccines. So does the censorship or lack of democracy play a role in the spread of rumors? Or can we generally say it's less common in more democratic societies? Um, rumors? Sometimes I think it's more common in democratic societies. The spread of rumors, um, because there's less... Con- um, because people can speak freely, it uh, it allows for the good, bad, and the ugly to go, you know, spread widely. Um, on the other hand, in in different societies that are um, more either religiously or politically controlled, those rumors still exist, but they uh, tend to be more underground. But they affect people's decisions and behaviors. Um, I was in Iran, which it's an absolutely beautiful country, um, to the Ministry of Health asked me to come and help um, in the preparedness for a countrywide uh, measles uh, camp- vaccination campaign in, uh, I think that was about 2004, Um at, at least around that time, they were, they were going to vaccinate 33 million people, everybody under 25, to catch up from a lot of missed opportunities in the previous two decades. For yeah, political... I was one of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what they were worried about was um, they had uh, had a tetanus uh, vaccination campaign where uh, some girls reacted badly with psychosomatic, what was assessed as psychosomatic reactions. Um, and there was a lot of spread and fear and anxiety about some brain disease or something. And it, it wasn't, I write about this phenomenon a bit in the book. Um, and so they didn't want something like that again to happen. Uh, that was actually a, a 
viral fear, but it was a smaller issue. But, you know, the idea that they're vaccinating that many people, they knew it was a risk. So to the credit of the, the ministry and the psych, they have a psychiatrist on staff at the time just because of that previous incident. Um, we, When you prepare people, when they know what's coming um, and they feel like they have an opportunity to ask questions, it really helped mitigate. The only resistance we had, interestingly, was a radio pro- Iranian group uh, that had a radio program in in Los Angeles that was trying to spread rumors that, you know, the government's trying to experiment on you. You know, we didn't have really local resistance. Some of the elites in Tehran said, no, no, that's for poor people. Um, but uh, which uh, these vaccines are for everyone. They don't distinguish. Um, but that it was interesting. Uh, so, so that was, and that's again, it was a, uh, uh, in some countries, there were rumors about tetanus sterilizing because it's targeting young girls um, and pregnant women. Um, but uh, this one was less about sterilization and more the anxiety about these reactions that they saw with these these girls. Um, and that's be- we've had similar issues around the HPV vaccine. So anxiety, I mean, part of it is psychology. Part of it is when people use these opportunities for political undermining or benefit, um, cultural reasons, religious reasons, and in this case, sheer. I mean, we shouldn't forget that some people just are afraid of needles, uh, just really afraid of needles. Uh, And I get that. (laughs) But, um, yeah. Yeah, one of the funny rumors that kind of spread in my country, just like uh, two years ago with COVID, it wasn't a widespread rumor, but in social media, I came across some religious fanatics who said that it's a Jewish conspiracy. They're with the vaccines, they're trying to make Muslims uh, sterile. It's it was just yeah, it's so silly. Anyhow, yeah, that's a classic one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's talk. There is a very important chapter in your book that that I must say had never even occurred to me. The, question of lost dignity and distrust there is this group of people who feel that they have been left out and it's not productive if we could just call them ignorant it just fuels more resistance so can you talk about that idea of lost uh, dignity and distrust in the spread of rumors yes um the dignity issue really um struck me in a in a big way people feel like they have uh, no voice in these matters. It's very government. When you think about it, I mean, vaccines are uh, approved by government, regulated by government, sometimes required by government. So if you, and it's very um, top down in the sense that there's a schedule, you have to follow it. Um, your doctor tells you what to do. And you don't, there's no, particularly for the current era, um, a feeling that you have no choice in the matter. You, you're not even supposed to change the schedule. And some one of the anxieties among young parents is too many too soon. And there are a lot now for it's not just the basic six that we had 30 years ago or something. It's it's a lot uh, for, for an infant. But I mean, there's plenty of evidence that it kids can not only take it, but it can save their life. Um, but I think there is this sense of, um, you know, 
they don't have any voice. And, and particularly when young parents have tried to ask questions in the clinic to doctors or others, they feel like they're judged. And um, I mean, I had one woman come into my office. She was leading a, kind of one of these more natural mums networks. And she said, you know, I heard you on the radio and I really appreciate the fact that you're not blaming parents for all these problems. And I just want to tell you, you should talk to your health and medical peers and tell them if they can talk nicely, there's more people, even in my nature network, um, who would be interested. And then she pulled out a file of newspaper clippings, testimonies from young women where they're called all kinds of awful terms, stupid, ignorant, in the UK, nutters, Boris Johnson called them a bunch of nutters. You know, it's it's not a nice thing. Um, and so they feel like we can't even ask a question and we're judged. I think that is changing slowly because my book in particular, but, uh, you know, there have been others who have said, wait a minute, there's this, you know, group in the middle that aren't a bunch of, you know, crazies, or in in fact, they're quite um, uh, reasonable questions that some of these women are asking, and you need to hear them out. You may not agree with some of their ideas, but some of them are quite, I mean, I even sat with a group of uh, women in northern Nigeria who low income, not much education, and they were really annoyed that the radio was referring to them, uh, those polio vaccine refusers, as ignorant. And they said, you know, if we're so ignorant, we wouldn't be asking these questions. And I was like, right on, you get it, <laughs> I got it. <laughs> yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, that's right, because we have known some people who are anti-vaxxers, and they do their own research. But it's a different question what kind of sources they look at, but they do their own research, and they have reasons that they're afraid of. It's really difficult to build that dialogue if you just uh, dismiss them as conspiracy theories. Well, I I think one problem is we can't call them anti-vaxxers. No, I meant to call them ignorant and then completely shut down doors of conversation. The the people who question we should not refer to as anti-vaxxers, and that's been part of the problem. The media has, it's, likes to polarize issues, and which are already polarized. But, you know, this idea that there's pro and there's anti, full stop. And the reality is there's a little bit of pro and a, and a little bit of anti, or I should say, there's a there's a growing number of anti and a growing number of, you know, aggressively pro, but there's also this spectrum in the middle of genuinely concerned, anxious, uh, misinformation, not disinformation, which is more intentionally perpetrated, um, and uh, I think we need to kind of change the language a bit because. That's been part of the problem. Um, One of the mothers said, I tried to ask my doctor a question and he 
you know, he looked at me like I was some kind of flat earther and I just was scared. You know, I wanted to ask some questions about a vaccine for my first child. Um, and so I, I think that that's, that's mm. one of the things language yeah. matters, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point you brought up. I didn't think about that. I hadn't thought about that in this way. You're right. Yeah, because the moment you call somebody an anti-vaxxer, you're already associating a lot Touching of them. negative yeah. things to them. Yeah, you're right. It could be this gray area. They haven't decided yet. They want to. They're genuinely cur- curious, as you mentioned. And uh, that actually is the perfect segue to my next question, which has two parts, let's say. First of all, with like when I want to go to a doctor or my, my partner wants to go to a doctor. We just do a lot of search on the internet to know about my symptoms or what's good for me. So we go to a doctor with some ideas. Sometimes it works. The doctor is kind enough to listen to us. Sometimes the doctor is just too busy and doesn't have time to listen to us. So do you think that scientists and health professionals feel that their authority is kind of waning by the yes. spread of information? And Yeah. yeah. And then how it's can these two build trust and talk to each other? Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things I try to do in, in Stuck is um, talk about, give the perspective from all sides, um, because I, I, it's part of anthropology training is to put yourself in the seat of different pe- people and just ex- what they're experiencing and um, uh, you know, I think doctors are are in that group of um, people who feel like their dignity is wounded a bit. Um, their authority. I mean, the doctor was always like the person you just went to, and we. I. This is what I feel like, and I trust your judgment on whatever I need to do, and um, and I trust also that if you don't know enough about something you'll send me to the right person (laughs) um and that's that's it's still there i mean there still is um health professionals still are in the in the higher trust category um i mean overall trust is really dropped dramatically across a number of different institutions and individuals but um, but still, um, and, and I think it's, as one doctor told me, you know, it's just like a punch in the stomach when you've spent years and years studying all these things to, to be able to counsel and give advice and, and have the expertise. And they come in with something from Dr. Google that's really not, it's ha- almost harmful and they don't want to hear it. Um, I mean, they, so I understand some of the some of the loss of felt loss of dignity there. Some of them are, and it's not sometimes just because they're a bit too busy, which is um, a lot of the time it's it's busyness. But sometimes it's also that I just can't hear this, you know, <laughs> or um, it's just it's too hard to hear these crazy ideas. Um, but I think that what I do encourage is that at least you hear them out. Because maybe it's a crazy piece of misinformation they found, and maybe actually they're just they're really worried about something, and they just need some consoling and 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 confirmation that this is the right thing to do. It is, you know, this is how it's going to help your child or or yourself, depending on the vaccine. So, but if they don't 
listen past the first few words. Um, but I, I do think that that's, um, that has been changing because I think there's been enough of us raising concern about, about that um, polarization. Um, but what's happened during COVID and uh, one um, physician author who I have huge respect for, um, she wrote a really interesting article in around the H1N1 pandemic called Emotional Epidemiology. And she was talking about how at the beginning when H1N1 in 2009 was announced as a pandemic, all these people were coming to her clinic and said, where's the vaccine? Where's the vaccine? And then by the time the vaccine came and it was clear that this wasn't going to be a COVID, so to speak, it was bad, but not as bad. Um, and then the vaccine was ready a bit later and they were like, no, thanks. I don't need this. Um, um, but she's written reflections on COVID now where she talks about, okay, a lot of us have learned we need to, you know, we're, do, we're becoming better listeners. We're open to this, but there is a unique, she calls it a unique belligerence during, that's come up during COVID where it's, I don't even want to talk about it. I mean, where people, where you try to talk to people about a COVID vaccine, not an option. Next. Nope. I don't even want to talk about it. So it, there has been a hardening of views. And frankly, I personally think we have let this whole issue brew too long until it's become a crisis. But that's water under the bridge, as they say. And I think you made a good point about some patients want to just have some sort of consolation and reformation. It's a good thing to hear them out. Yeah. And do you think that this... this and you, you call this volatility of opinion. People have more information about their, have more information compared to past about their health. Do you think it's generally a positive thing or a negative thing? Is it a threat or is it an opportunity to be able to build that dialogue or trust between anti-vaxxers or, I know I'm, I'm kind of worried to use that term now because of what you just <laughs> said earlier. Questioners. <laughs> yeah, questioners and uh, doctors or health professionals. Well, I think I, I bring up the, the volatility point because, I mean, 10, 20 years ago, um, you know, you could do these, you know, knowledge attitude practice studies with your population and keep that study on the shelf and refer to it. And, uh, and you know, there'd be a bit of, you knew which parts of the population were going to be more hesitant and um, others that are more, you know, just will accept certain things. Um, but that's out the door. I mean, it, you you can barely get some of these public perception studies printed and the opinions are, are changing. It's And it's, I think, largely because of, again, the, the speed of this new, new media um, that, you know, they... You, you think you've convinced someone or you, that their intention to get a vaccine, but on the way to the clinic, they see something on their smartphone that makes them scared and they'll turn around and go home. Um, or, you know, we've seen in, in Pakistan, one WhatsApp little video of someone um, falling on a bed, you know, stops 70,000 people from getting their polio vaccine because it creates public panic. So, this kind of volatility, um, I guess my point with it, 
and the, and I wrote that chapter before COVID, but it was even more volatile in COVID because it wasn't just about the volatility of public opinion. It was the, the volatility of scientific information that it was constantly changing. It was evolving, but evolving because we had more and more information. Uh, so I think for policymakers, it was very difficult because, um, I mean, we could complain that they kept changing the guidance, but they kept getting changing information from as the situation evolved. So my point with this chapter is um, basically to say that what it means is don't assume, you know, what your patient or colleague or whatever um, was thinking, you know, last time they were in the clinic is going to be the same. Be ready for different changes and from a from our work we think it's really super important at a, for ministries of health and others to keep your finger on the pulse of what the public is thinking because it may not be what it was the last campaign and it will not be the same that it was so we need to kind of from a from a policy and practice point of view kind of be more vigilant and responsive and our interventions need to be flexible and responsive to where the issues and the questions are and it's a whole new way of working uh, use this term in your book digital wildfires what do you mean by that what are digital wildfires in the spread of rumors well, wildfires, as you know, it takes a spark and it takes a dry forest um, and a water shortage or whatever for that spark to, you know, have enough kindle and enough fuel to keep it going. And in the case of digital wildfires, it's a bit like um, the examples I was just giving, you know, if one, if there's a, a an environment, an appetite or a fertile ground of anxiety. And, you know, you drop a, a WhatsApp or a tweet or whatever, uh, Instagram, whatever platform you're using um, uh, on digital social media, it, if, if there's an appetite for it, it can spread like a wildfire. And I look a bit at the physics of wildfires too in that chapter. And there are certain things you can do to contain a wildfire at one stage. But when the wildfire gets to a certain point, um, and there's been some fascinating physics on this, it, it gets a whole momentum of its own that's beyond any traditional ways to control it. And that's a bit what's happening with, with digital wildfires. There's a certain point that you can you almost can't rein it in um and and the only place you can rein it in is a bit earlier or when you're alert to when it gets started and then you try to inoculate the public so to speak with um awareness that no this is not going to kill you um or however um we've also learned that you don't react specifically to if somebody is sending around something that says, example, drink drink a quart of chlorine to cure your COVID, you don't respond to that social media post because you're just giving it more fuel. You take that information and you start a separate um, 
you in different ways try to get the better information out there or try to mitigate the panic. But that's what the chapter really is looking at. And can you talk about how social media triggers a viral spread of emotions that might even be accompanied by physical reactions in society? Well, this was a little bit... um, uh, you're talking about the emotional contagion. Yeah. Um, there's actually been some very interesting work on this, including a very early uh, paper uh, by by Facebook itself about how um, emotions, if you change some of the emotions that are provoked in, in language or images, it can really... Um, uh, some of them can get much more traction than others. And one of the phenomena of moving from a much more text-based to images and videos, which are far more emotive, um, provoking um, everything from anger, fear, anxiety, hope, um, um, belief. Um, I mean, there, there are history of rumors that, that got spread that said, this, this awful president is stepping down next week and then everyone believes it. And then they, you know, and because of that, it kind of becomes a reality and they, they vote for, I mean, they vote him out because the, they heard that he's going anyway, when in fact he wasn't necessarily. Um, but, um, with the emotional contagion, there's not just the, what I talk about is that it's, it's not just about the emotions and misinformation that can go contagious. There, there are um, anxiety emotions that can actually uh, have physical symptoms. Um, and in this case, I talk about um, some reactions to the, tet- the tetanus story in, in Iran, but also particularly the story of um, HPV vaccination, which is largely given to adolescent girls, increasingly boys in, in the countries that can afford it. Um, and that uh, was initially about, uh, there were about 12, and then it became more girls in Japan that um, started to have these uh, shaking, uh, fainting, nausea, sometimes immobility, eating disorders after HPV vaccination. Um, and then it created... Uh, a panic and that went and then it the mothers of these girls started a very aggressive anti-HPV campaign but these videos of they took videos of the girls you know in wheelchairs and and with some of these symptoms that went viral Um, and then there were a group of girls in Denmark that started having the same reactions Ireland a bit in the Netherlands but um, and then it jumped to Colombia in South America, um, where it was about five or six hundred girls across different settings. It was it was like an epidemic, and that's why I call it a contagion. And what they've seen in the research, I talk about that there too, that these um, what were assessed as psychosomatic reactions um, can usually they happen in the same when you're in the same room and one faints and everybody else faints, but um, 
what's happening now with social media as just just the sheer image of it, even if it's halfway around the world, can instill that anxiety. So when you're next in line to get this vaccine, you, you know, and so it's a, it's actually not caused by the product, the vaccine itself, but the experience of the vaccination. And it's become such a big issue that uh, last year or year before, WHO issued new guidance. Well, not new guidance. Um, yeah, it is new because they hadn't um, really um, put this as a safety concern, but um it's called immunization stress-related responses, they, they call it, because there was a sense that psychosomatic reaction language was kind of stigmatizing, um, and people didn't want to hear that. So they're calling it immunization-related stre- immunization stress-related responses. And it's guidance for healthcare professionals to say, this kind of thing can happen, and this is the way you can try to mitigate it um, particularly in situations where you, we know that there's this experience. So it's fascinating, um, not just the, the, and I'm leading now a new commission with the Lancet on the emotional determinants of health, of physical health, actually, um, and how this um, kind of mind-emotion body uh, connection is very real. Uh, so, uh, do you think that this growth of access to information has changed the social dynamics of science and how can scientists be more proactive in reaching a wider audience, in establishing a dialogue with them? Well, we had quite a stage for scientists during COVID. Um, I think there was more science um, on at the podium than ever. <laughs> um, but the problem, the challenge now is because it was always the scientist standing next to the politician or the policymaker, um, what the public heard and saw was science says, therefore you do. And um, what has happened is there's been huge aggression towards the scientists uh, physical threats. Uh, I mean, I, I'm based in Brussels. We there were a couple of the key spokespeople, scientists, oh, who had to be protected with security. One had to be taken to a hidden house in another country um, because somebody was running around with a, a rifle trying to kill him. Um, and we've, I mean, I just I've been giving talks at scientific conferences where scientists from different parts of the world are saying it's not just about anti-science sentiments. We're getting a lot more um, aggressive uh, threats online, threats on our life, threats on our what we're saying, uh, because people feel like they had locked down because of those bloody scientists that that's, it was their modeling, it was their scientific, it was their, you know, vaccine um, and decisions, um, and which is really unfortunate. And it was already something that was coming up. Um, so 
I say that coming back to your point about scientists speaking up more, what has happened because of this environment is some of them have, I mean, both Nature Journal and, and Science have done surveys on this with their readership and basically um, have seen that more scientists are starting to not want to engage with the public because it's so aggressive now. And that's not great. I mean, we need to create a safe space where scientists can speak. Um, And maybe it's not the scientists themselves, because I think what we need to do is to get people in the middle, so to speak, to sit with scientists, help develop some kind of um, lay type of communication. Frankly, it's something that I end up with my team doing a lot of, listening to a lot of science and trying to turn it into a, an accessible language and understanding with the public, because sometimes the language is just, um, you know, cryptic. <laughs> and you, it's, it's not something that translating from one language to another is going to do it. It's about explaining what it means, really. Um, and And it was pretty amazing during COVID how many people were talk, talking about the r not and a taxi driver telling me about his lateral flow test and, you know, um, hearing about in the whole mRNA platform and the whole, and part of it has created a lot of anxiety because what is, what is all this about, you know? So I think we need more science engagement, but I think we need it at a very starting at very young ages. Mm-hmm. It's a sad thing I did not know about this this kind of attacks uh, against scientists, especially in the past two years. That's that that was surprising to me. Um, just as a last question, so if there's this person who who is who is an anti-vaxxer, not even a questioner, but how? I don't know if you have any ideas, any, I mean, recommendations to, to, to at least start a dialogue and uh, be able to to communicate, you know, what, what scientists have been researching for years. Um, I have to confess, it's one thing that I, I didn't focus enough on in the book, um, uh, partly because... One, it wasn't as bad as it is now when I was working on the book. That particular issue has gotten much more extreme, um, and and COVID has uh, aggressively even further polarized. Uh, But I also felt like a lot of people were pointing fingers at anti-vax movements and whatever, Um, but what I felt was missing and the focus of the book was really more to try to bring attention to this, um, the, the, the middle there and that we can't lose them. So I had much more focus on that, but to your point, and I'm spending a lot more time thinking about and, and coming up with strategies with colleagues to your point, how do you talk to these people that are so hardened in their views? And, um, for a lot of them, we're not going to be able to change their mind. And I think that what I try to do is there's always something you can agree on with most people. You don't try to change their mind about the thing they're most hardened in their views on. But you want to have a conversation with them and be able to have a dialogue. 
and maybe it's talking about something else. Maybe it's talking about their kids and their kids' sports and their whatever. Um, and if they don't have kids, something else. Um, but talking about vaccines, there was a cartoon in one of the French newspapers and it was saying it used to be politics. We couldn't talk about it at the dinner table and now it's vaccines. Um, you know, it's, and most of the time the two are embedded. Um, but, um, but I do think that what we do need to do is, as I mentioned, start very young and get a younger cohort of kids who are really um, have a mind of their own and um, really have a critical critical thinking and don't just gobble up the stuff that... And I do think we actually have, I think the, the youngest generation of... Uh, students and whatever are much more critical of what they see. They don't trust it. The problem is we have such an environment of don't trust anything that we need to actually re-inculcate some trust um, because I see a lot of young people who just scare it, you know. It's like, I can't trust it. I can't trust it. I don't know if that's right. And then they don't, they bring that same sentiment to the really good stuff and as um, because they're just not sure anymore what to trust. So I, I do think we have, we have to look at this as a bit of a system issue. Um, and, and for those who are, are very extreme, try not to, because what happens is a lot of times you have people who were like, you know, friends, colleagues who you, you know, so many other things you get along with, but that one can be, you know, a, a friend and colleague breaker. Um, I've seen it, and it's it's sad. But I, I think we should try to not not break these relationships because of that one stip- sticking point. Professor Heidi Larson, thank you very much for your time and sharing your thoughts on New Books Network with us. Thanks so much.